0: Beloved, please remain standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Our text will be verse 11 through verse 32. And before I read the text, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we come now to the preaching of your word A very solemn task, a solemn duty, O Lord, that not only that the text might be explained rightly, but that it might be received, that it might be put into practice. Lord, the doctrines, Lord, the the lesson itself would be grasped and understood. And the truth, Lord, that comes out of this text, the truth. Amazing mercy and grace, Lord, that you have for sinners would be received. And, Lord, that truth would energize and refresh each and every one of us. All who call upon you, all who trust in you, all, O Lord, who rest in you as our God of salvation, Lord, refresh our souls this morning with the truth of this word. If there is one here this morning, Father, that would rightly fall into this category of a wayward son, be merciful. Open their heart, their eyes to see and understand not only their condition, but Lord of your amazing grace. Now come, Father, bless the preaching of your word. Make it effectual, Lord, to the elect. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And beloved, I want to begin reading at verse 11. And these are the words of our Lord. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. And I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, "Father, and I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. make me as one of your hired men." And so he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, For so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, son. You have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. parable of the prodigal son is probably one of the most beloved and well-known parables in the New Testament. It is the longest of all the parables. It is the most detailed of all the parables. But what is it that makes this particular parable so beloved, so powerful? Well, maybe it's the of the parable that makes it so beloved. I mean, the first two parables that Jesus uses in order to instruct his listeners, that of the shepherd with the lost sheep and that of the, the, uh, possibly the woman, the widow or the divorcee who has lost a coin. What is it that makes this particular parable even greater than the first two? Well, quite frankly, it must be the relationship. Not many of us, even in Jesus' time, could relate to the loss of a sheep. Not everyone was shepherds. I mean, we can sense it. We can certainly somewhat relate to it of, of, of the gravity or the celebration of, of losing something that's important and finding it. We can relate to that. But we don't really relate to the shepherd himself unless we are shepherds. We don't really relate to the woman who's in dire need of of certainly maintaining uh, some financial stability, typically in a world that's dominated um, by men. To be in that type of need, possibly we have, possibly we do. But it seems to be more relational, that the, or at least the third parable seems to be more relational because, in this portion of Jesus' correction and teaching, he uses a father and his sons. Now, it's not a true story about any particular family, but it is true to the human experience. That's what makes parables so powerful. There is a truth in this experience that we can all relate to, all of us. You can say, well, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl, I'm not a son, I'm a daughter, I'm not a husband, I am a wife or a mother, a father, but a mother. Either way, a parent, a child, all of us have been someone's child at some point in time. Even right now we may be still someone's child who has a parent that is still living or maybe we're a young person sitting out in the congregation and you can certainly relate to this story. That's what makes this story so powerful. What is Jesus doing? What's the context? Well, the very first verse of chapter 15 tells us the problem. He says that the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, being Christ, to listen to him. Now, we got to be careful, and we don't want to fall into some of the pitfalls that some of these um, more social-oriented gospels relate to. And that is, all sinners ought to be embraced. Jesus never discriminated. He just had this indiscriminate fellowship with sinners. That's just not the case it tells us why the sinners were drawing near to him. They were drawing near to him because of his message, because of his teaching, because of his his willingness to sit down with them and explain to them what, explain what? How a sinner can be made clean in the sight of God how a sinner can be made clean in the sight of god how can someone who is dirty and morally filthy who has no ability to overcome any bad with good how do they become clean in god's sight that's the gospel that's why we call the gospel the good news That's the good news. That is, there is a remedy for our moral impurity. Amen. There's a remedy for our waywardness. There's a remedy for all of the corruption that we have lived in. For all of our rebellion, there's a remedy. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the message of the gospel. And that's why the gospel was powerful in Jesus' day. And that's why even in our day, sinners are drawn to the preaching of the gospel. They want to be made right. How do I, how can I be made clean again? Because I'm so filthy. Well, the Pharisees and the scribes did not appreciate this intermingling with sinners. They were not worthy to be in the same presence of an esteemed teacher as Jesus. And they were offended by this. And so Jesus is now teaching a series of parables to not just correct this mindset, but to rebuke them and correct them. In the very heart of these parables is, well, it's obvious to all who read them. You can't miss it. Whether it's the shepherd and the sheep, it's the rejoicing. Verse six, and when he comes home, what is he? He, found, he finds the sheep. He leaves the 99. He comes home. What is he? He calls his friends and his neighbors, saying, Tell them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The same with the woman in the lost coin. What does she do when she finds it? She calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I have lost. And Jesus says, In the same way, like her, right? Like her. I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. As we get into the parable of the prodigal son, we'll see that the father of the son does the same thing. Now, what is this prodigal son? I mean, your text may have the lost son. Why is this parable called the prodigal son? Well, the word prodigal does not mean lost. It means extravagant or wasteful. And that describes the lifestyle of this younger son. He's extravagantly wasteful. And we'll see this as we move along in our text. Well, what I want to do this morning is I want to relate this parable not just in its, it had an eastern setting, of course, and we're of the western mindset and there are some of the things about some things about the parable that might not stand out to us i hope to highlight some of those and use some words to describe the younger son to help us relate to him so that we might examine ourselves and to see where we are in this parable. That's what we're to do. We're to use the parable to look into our own hearts. This this word of the Lord is to pierce our hearts and we are to consider these two sons and ask ourselves which one is me. Which one do I relate to the most? Who am I more like? The younger or the older? son. Well, the parable, as it relates to the family, beloved, couldn't be more pertinent in our day and time. With the rise of critical race theory, the rise of communism, the very heart of communism is to divide people in general it's divide male and female, husbands and wives. It's to create competition and a desire to, to compete but also to gain things for ourselves and to keep it away from others. It d- divides by gender, by race, by any number of things. That's what it does. That's the very heart to it. And critical race theory is the tool invented by the communists to separate the family. you might be aware of, or you may not be, there is no doubt a push in this country to separate the family, to encourage divorce, to encourage selfishness, to encourage Encourage self-promotion, to be against what the family is, particularly the biblical aspect, the biblical model of the family, to divide parents and children. There have been disgusting viral videos posted on social media of children going on rants and raves about their parents, typically parents that stand for traditional things, Moral things. Videos of funerals where children stand up and completely, inappropriately speak ill of their parents. They're applauded, they're accepted, they are considered brave, and well, I said disgusting because that's what it is. To the normal mind, you see there's something about the parable that Jesus is expecting when when he uses the parable. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is setting the parable over there because of the natural filial affection that a father and children ought to have for one another that 's what makes the parable so powerful. And the first word that I want to use to describe this extravagant, wasteful son is heartless, heartless. Now, how is the son heartless? Well, look at verse 12. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he, being the father, divided his wealth between them, the two sons, Well, in verse 12, there is something very offensive to the Eastern mind about this request. It's an offensive. It's a very offensive request. Not only should there be filial affection between a child and its parents and the parent to the child, But here, what does the son request? What does the son demand? What is he asking the father for? Give me my inheritance. This would have been completely offensive to the Eastern mind. What the son is actually saying is, I wish you were dead. Just give me what's mine now. This is not a reasonable, or this is not in any way a, you know, the Western mind is, not as offended as the eastern mind about the request. We were like, well, look, it's his anyway. Let's go ahead and divide it up and be done with it. Here it is. Be gone. Take take it. See you. But not in the eastern mind. The idea that a son would demand his portion of the inheritance would have been Staggering. And offensive. He's heartless. He he lacks. This son lacks that nat. Listen, I want to say I use the word natural. Why? Because it is normal. It is natural for a son to love his father. For a child to love. It's parent, the one who cares for them, the one who is taking care of them, the one who is meeting their needs, growing them up, shaping and molding them, making them useful and productive in society and before God, making them worshipers, giving them all of the teaching to shape their morality, to give them the tools they need to work and labor and live before God successfully. That's the parent that ought to be loved, adored, and honored. Amen. This is the father here. I will address the father later. I want to focus on the son. He's heartless. We must come to grips with the reality that the spirit of the age in this nation calls rebellion toward those parents, brave, beautiful. They are to be honored. The spirit of this age, the darkness that prevails over this land, it, 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 it promotes this kind of rebellion between child and parent and of course this young man has drinking has drunk from that cup and he is demanding from his father what he says is rightfully his give me the share of the estate that falls to me i want what's mine and we all know as parents the labors, the struggles, the, the effort given to pay the bills, to put money in savings, to, to spend enough money to have a modicum of uh, reasonable, restful kind of life, to enjoy those things that can be enjoyed, to beautify the home and to make it a, a place of a, a where it's pleasant to be, and to have a child come and demand that. I could see the father being offended. The son has not labored for these things. And yet, you can see this, this heartless son has no concern for all that the father has provided, the environment the tools, the resources, not just physically, but even morally and spiritually. As we see, working through the text, the father's presence and very environment was that which hemmed the child in. I say child, young adult, really. It was the environment created by the father that put up moral hedges to keep the son, as it were, in check, he couldn't exercise the lust of his heart, so he demanded the resources so that he could leave. Will indulge in them. He's heartless. He doesn't. It does not bother him that this request, this demand, is offensive to the father. It doesn't bother him. Why? Because he's so selfish. He is so dedicated to the indulgence of his lusts. That's all that matters. How can I indulge this lust? I have all of these secret fantasies and I need to indulge in them. I don't have the resources. Give me what's mine. Well, the father does. which brings up our second word. Not only is he heartless, he's rootless. What do I mean by rootless? Well, look at, look at verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. He's, he's rootless. He has no... There is nothing in him that desires to be rooted in this tradition, this family, this love, this environment that God says, that scripture says, is quite a blessing. You know what is a companion to this parable is the book of Proverbs. Read the book of Proverbs, and you'll see the companion of, that's the companion book to this whole parable of how, throughout, particularly those first ten parable, uh, for first ten chapters of Proverbs, where the father and the mother are what instructing, pleading, uh, encouraging, right, warning what? the children, the sons, the daughters. To 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 be discerning, to be understanding, to, to be able to distinguish between that which is good and that which is good-ish. Now, why do I say goodish? Well, because, I mean, we seem to be able to recognize blatant evil, but that's not what tricks our young people. That's not what tricks the naive. That's not what causes them to stumble. It's those things that look, well, mostly good, but yet have that element, that hook that snares them when they get into it. And they're not able to discern that. And we have a whole book in Scripture that's dedicated to what? Bringing The naive. What is a naive person? A naive person is an inexperienced, uneducated person. To give them an experience through the instruction of the word so that they don't have to experience the evil itself. That's why the book of Proverbs focuses on the word listen, my son. Listen. Learn by listening and not by doing those things that are wrong. The younger son did not heed this instruction. I'm sure he was catechized. I'm sure he was taught the book of Proverbs. It would have been natural for the Hebrew household to be full of this type of instruction, and yet this son is rootless. He wants to detach himself from this environment and this context. He wants to remove himself from it. And he wants to go out on his own so that he might sow his wild oats. He leaves the things that he is familiar with. He leaves the things that he believes, he has become convinced Like so many young people today, I'm in jail. I'm in bondage. I need to be liberated. I need to be set free. I'm going to set myself free. I'm going to move away. Why does he want to move? Well, look at the text. He goes into a distant country. They don't know him. They're not familiar with his family. He he doesn't have to go. Oh yeah, I'm a member of this synagogue over here. No 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 no. I don't. You know that's not me. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Why did he want to uproot himself and detach himself from this? moral environment from this good place from the place listen as we will learn from the place where there is great kindness and mercy where there is love true love All that mattered to this young man was that he has to uproot himself. I have to liberate myself. I have to free myself from this tradition, from these morals, and I need to go somewhere where I can be myself. I can relate to this young man because that's exactly the way I felt growing up. I can't wait to leave this house. And I signed up for the military. Best thing in God's providence that could have ever happened. Because there I learned a lot of lessons about life and about people. And I came to my senses in that environment and realized how important family is. Beloved, this young man is rootless. He wants to detach himself. He wants to see himself liberated and free. He's drinking the spirit of the age, if you will, in. He's like the Esau. You know, Jacob and Esau here. I mean, the older son He's not righteous either. But here the younger son is dominant, It's like even Esau. It, the Bible talks about how his immorality grieved his parents. He wants to go exercise his lusts. But what he finds out as we work through the text, you know what he finds in this distant land? He finds a prison because that's exactly what sin does. Sin enslaves us. As Paul teaches us in the book of Romans, chapter 6, when we indulge in those lusts, those lusts become our master, they become our keeper. And we are nothing more than the servant of that lust to indulge in it and indulge in it and indulge in it. And all the while lying to ourselves, thinking satisfaction's coming, satisfaction's coming, satisfaction's coming, and it never comes. It's a prison. I've really struggled with the next one, but I'm going to give you the concept and we're going to talk about several of these. In verses 14 through 16, we have, well, this pitiful condition that this young man finds himself in. He you know, how do we describe this? Helpless? He's pitiful. Notice what the text says, and now when he had spent everything, now where's his resources? A severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. He began to suffer. That's what the word impoverished is conveying to us. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. What do we find here? We find a very pitiful young man now. And you might use these words to describe him under pitiful, helpless. He has no means any longer to provide for himself, to make a way for himself, to cause others to do something for him. Now he must hire himself out. I must work for you. He has to go get a job so that he can earn something just to try to meet some basic need in his life. He went from extravagant and wasteful living now to begging. It's a great picture of sin, isn't it? We see the downward spiral of this young man, don't we? It's not getting better. Now I have something to say about that, but and let me say this, not everybody who leaves home in a rebellious state does poorly. Some of them do quite well. And I don't think that's a blessing. You see, what we're going to find out is this young man comes to his senses. These hardships, this, this, this the, 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 the result and the, 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 fa- the fruit of this lust of bearing out in his life, and he becomes introspect. He becomes self-examining. He's looking now at the problem. The problem isn't this country. The problem isn't this famine. The problem is me. It's my heart. That's the problem. It's not my father. It's not my brother. It's me. Helpless. How about this? Joyless. And how about this one? Worthless. You say, that's harsh, Pastor Stanfield. I know. I know. But you see, that's where sin takes us. Sin, when it has its way with us and it's unbridled, can reduce us to being worthless. That's the reality. Now, that may be a reality that you won't think about, but it is the reality. You might say it this way. There's really only one person that cares about this young man in this parable. Who do you think that is? It's the father. His brother didn't care about him. See, the older brother's selfish too. Remember how the story starts off he got his portion of the inheritance too. And I have more to say about that next week. All the things that this young man sought after, he found. And it ruined him. All of his lusts were indulged. And it did nothing but ruin him. All of the things that he thought was going to make him happy, beloved, ruined him. Brought him to a pitiful, helpless, joyless, worthless reality. But the story doesn't stop there. Our Lord is pressing home the point to his listeners. He's, he's addressing, he's not letting the sinner off the hook. Look how he's highlighting the gross nature of this young man, the sinner that he is. He's a certainly addressing these tax collectors and these sinners in that are coming to listen to him he is certainly addressing them he's not letting them off the hook he's not somehow saying oh these sinners are better than these sinners no he is talking about how gross they are and they are in a helpless condition a joyless condition But now let's talk of his restoration from verse 17 through 21. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? This restoration, it did not come through someone just feeling sorry for the young man. Where did the restoration of this young man's life begin? With himself. With himself. The process of restoration began. It began in verse seventeen, in that first statement. But when he came to his senses, the word "ideas," he came to himself. He actually opened all of the dreams, all of the the faux glamour, all of this liberated lifestyle, all of these things that we were told that if we indulge in, we'll be the happiest. Well, he comes to his senses. He comes to himself. That's a lie. That is not true. If it were, I'd be the happiest man in the world. But yet look at me. I'm friendless, I'm hopeless, (laughs) I'm homeless. That's my reality. Where are my friends? They're all gone. They spent his money. They, you know, fair weather friends. He was the most popular guy in the city when he arrived with these bags of money But because he ran out, they were no longer his friends. He has no home. He has to go beg. He makes not even enough money. He's so poor in what he makes that he looks at the food, the slop of the pigs, and he goes, I don't even eat as good as the pigs. That's how impoverished he is. He comes to himself. And brothers and sisters, let's make no mistake about it. Now, some of you may be saying, good riddance, he deserves it. Ah, I'm not going to argue with you. Where I might argue with you is to say, yeah, he probably does deserve it. This is where it leads. But praise God, he came to himself. Praise God. When he opens our eyes to see who we really are before God. The Lord opens his eyes. He sees his, I am a corrupt man. Now notice there are, there are really three things in verses 17 through 21 that we could highlight, write these down. The first word is remembered, remembered. Look at verse 17. He comes to his senses and said, Now, he's talking to himself like we do. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. He remembers what? What does he remember? The blessings of a household he despised. The favor that was in that household That favor that God had put upon his father's life because his father was a man before the Lord's face, if you will. And of course, obviously in the parable, ultimately the father represents the grace and the favor and the forgiveness of our heavenly father. He remembers where the benefits rightly are with the house of my father. And what does he do? He repents. He repents. Verse 18 I will get up and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. This this idea of sinning against heaven is sinning against God. I've sinned before God and I've sinned before you. He is now acknowledging I'm a sinner and I am sinful. But that's not enough. It's not just enough to remember, beloved, where the benefits are. It's not just enough to say these things. You have to act upon it. And this is where the word return comes in. So it's remembered, repentance, and return. Verse 20 and 21. So he got up and came to his father. He acted upon His repentance, so that he would bear the fruit of that repentance. Notice what verse 20 goes on to say. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, notice verse 21, he hasn't changed his mind. This is a long journey. He was in a faraway place all along the way. All that's happened in his own heart is he has deepened his conviction that he is a sinner. Hey, Amen. Those convictions, those newfound convictions have been strengthened. And what does he tell his father? Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He strengthened. Those convictions have grown stronger in this journey home. He didn't get home and go, you know, father, if you hadn't talked bad to me, I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have gone out there. If you had to just let me stay out a little longer with my friends, I wouldn't be so worried about the world. You know, I could go on, right? And I'm not pointing the finger at any of you young people. I did this. I remember telling mine, I couldn't wait to leave. And you can't take those things back. The unfortunate, the thing that grieves me the most when I think about my mother, who has been passed away now for many years, twenty something years, she has never saw that I became a preacher. She never got the chance to see that. The. Conviction has strengthened in his journey back home. Now he even acknowledges, I'm, "I'm not even. Don't don't even call me son. I'm just not worthy of it." He returns home. There are three things involved in repentance. Let me give those to you that are subcategories of those three words: remember, repentance, and return. And that is, there must be a change of mind. There was. A change of heart, there was. And a change of direction, there was. He returned home. That's true repentance. Now, beloved, I have to stop there. We don't have time to go further. But I want to highlight to you the emphasis that Jesus is making here. He uses this very intricate and detailed human experience to highlight the love of this father he 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 sets before the listeners this notorious rebellious young son who is so unappreciative you can't do enough for him you just can't help him he's beyond help he the the, the son is the smartest person in the house the Father loves him just like our Heavenly Father loved us and the Father sees him in verse 20 and he does something very uncharacteristic of an older man he takes off running after the son now we older people don't do a lot of running anymore we don't want to fall because it hurts And the older you get, the more it hurts. But the father is so overwhelmed by by this love he has for his son who's been gone, who knows how long. Long enough to squander the inheritance, long enough to come to himself. Now, that takes a little while. Because the harder the heart, right, he's heartless, remember? That takes seasons, He sees his boy and he takes off after the boy. He is wanting to impress upon his son. He doesn't wait for the son to come to him. He wants to impress upon the son Where have you been? I have been waiting for you. Welcome home. He wasn't sitting in the living room waiting on the son to come in and grovel at his feet. He wasn't waiting to hear those magic words. You were right, Father. Now, they often do. I will guarantee he did say that. Nothing wrong with that, but we're talking about the heart of the father. That wasn't important to the father. What was important to the father is that my son was lost, and now he's found. He was dead, and now he's alive. Kill the fatty. Let's celebrate. There's all kinds of celebrations in the Bible. We celebrate important providential events, acts of God. We celebrate worship. Worship is a celebration. We celebrate birthdays in the Bible. We celebrate events. I mean, there's just all kinds. People like to celebrate. Even the pagans celebrate when they destroy God's people. There's celebrations. I mean, there's all kinds of celebrations in the Bible. And yet, this celebration is very unique. It's very pointed. It's very important. It's to receive the wayward son, the one that was dead and is now alive. And it says in verse 24, and they began to celebrate. I want us this morning to be refreshed with this idea that heaven celebrates over the repentance of one sinner. That's you, that's me, that's our sons and daughters. Uh, Listen to me. This story is so powerful because there is nothing. I guarantee you, this father felt a hand reaching to his chest when his son left. And it felt like somebody was just crushing his heart. That's what it feels like. It's distinct. You don't get over it. And now you can imagine the son has come home. And there is nothing more delightful to that father than that boy who has now come home a man and realized he is unworthy of God's grace. Unworthy of God's grace. I deserve nothing. I'm unworthy. I I just want to be your servant. And what does the father say? You're not a servant, you're my son. You, beloved. If you're here this morning and you have repented and this repentance looks like this, you are his son and daughter. And heaven rejoiced when you came to that understanding. Don't squander it. Don't squander it. Live like the reality that is that you are the son and daughter of the living God, and you have a compassionate, loving, merciful, forgiving Heavenly Father that is always ready to f- receive us again and, again and again and again and again and again, like He did this morning. That is what is refreshing. That should strengthen us and fill us with hope and joy to live this life as obedient sons. And daughters, let us pray. Now, Father, teach us to bless your name more and more. Lord, may this scripture impact our lives. May we drink deeply of this cup of forgiveness. And may it truly refresh us and restore us and strengthen us, O oh Lord. Our faith, our hope, our joy that we can live this, in this world as sons and daughters of the living God. The one who is all merciful, all loving, all forgiving, all kind. Let that, Lord, be our motivation. And let us encourage our brothers and our sisters Let's encourage one another to continue on in obedience and faith, O oh Lord. Let us not look at this, env- this environment as constrictive, but helpful. Lord, there is nothing but darkness outside of your house. Let us learn to live in your house, Lord, happy and glad. All that's out there is sorrow and misery. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.